The Sacred Changemakers podcast is supported by Coaches Business School, helping the world's most caring coaches build a purpose-driven and profitable business that makes a meaningful impact in our world. Check out their unique frameworks and methods to help you transform and grow your business. Now is the time to build a bridge from what you want in life to include what the world needs. You can do well in business and do good, and together we can make a meaningful difference. Find out more at coachesbusinessschool.com. Hey there, my friends, and welcome back to the Sacred Changemakers podcast. Our guest this week is Alex Utterman. Now, she brings her decades worth of experience as a global, spiritual, inspirational healing leader to help others walk in wellness and be of more help to those around them. Her special focus during the COVID pandemic has been sharing simple, practical, and even radical self-care tools that dissolve stress and overwhelm and, and kind of anxiety on the spot. She's preventing the buildup to burnout among healthcare workers and anyone in their kind of helping and healing and service occupations. She spent many years living and training intensively in South India, and that's the origin of these powerful, effective tools that Alex now uses in her work. And that's kind of what we're talking about today. So the title for our conversation today is The Energetics of Self-Care. And this is something that you will find very quickly that Alex is, is, is really passionate about. And, you know, what you're going to hear in today's podcast is, you know, Alex has had a really interesting life journey that has given her many unique insights, I think, to bring to us. Um, and she really is this interesting blend of spirituality and yet bringing it down from the theoretical into the practicalities of everyday life. You'll hear us discussing daily rituals, you know, the things that we can do to take care of ourselves through these turbulent times. And we're also going to be discussing the challenges of our times, you know, from the global to the individual and how it's impacting us right now and how we can navigate this kind of in a more easier, kind of more healthful and resourceful way, because these things really matter. So without further ado, I do want to introduce you to Alex to help you to reconnect to the healer inside of you. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Hey, Alex, welcome to the Sacred Changemakers podcast. Well, hey, Jane, it's good to be here. No, I'm really excited about our conversation. You know, just in our pre-record chat there, we've just found a number of synergies and I'm really excited to kind of bring you to our audience here. Now, our listeners have just heard your, uh, your bio, your professional bio, um, and I'd love you to tell us a little bit about yourself, perhaps in your own words, you know, tell us a little bit about the human behind the bio. Who is she? <laughs> well, I'm still working that out. <laughs> That is the million dollar inquiry question, isn't it? Who are we really? Um, but for intents and purposes, so my background is kind of a funny one. I was uh, a musician, mostly trained in classical uh, pianism for a majority of my life. Uh, I was not a spiritual person. In fact, I was deeply skeptical about all things woo woo. Um, I wasn't raised in any particular religion or belief systems. So that left me open to explore and research about all the different, you know, world religions and different spiritual paths and this and that. So 
I had a slight interest in it, but it was more, um, let's say, academic, or at least I thought it was. Um, my life course took me through, uh, I wound up working as a journalist in Silicon Valley uh, in the field of computer gaming for many years. <laughs> master of trades, you know, uh, sorry, Joel of all trades, master of none. Uh, and so my writing and my uh, gaming mentality, uh, in addition to, you know, coming from a musical background, I think it's kind of like I had a sort of digital bohemian lifestyle running. And around that time, uh, spiritual healing hit me right over the head uh, through a number of experiences that I really wasn't looking for and didn't expect, which I think is kind of the best way, you know, I, uh, I was surrounded in uh, Silicon Valley with a lot of people who were spiritual seekers. Hey, some great, you know, so-and-so Lama or Rinpoche or some spiritual figure from some tradition is coming to a spiritual bookstore. Do you want to go? And I'm like, mm, I'm pretty sure I have to wash my hair that night. <laughs> like, no, I'm not interested. No, I really was not quote unquote a seeker or I found a uh, meditation and found it very helpful. So, and then I kind of explored a lot of different types of meditation once I got that bug, but otherwise this was just not my thing. And when healing hit me, or first through a friend who was a Reiki master who kind of gave me the Reiki experiences uh, and then made me a Reiki practitioner. <laughs> you know, I walked in thinking it was all nonsense and I walked out laughing and saying, oh my God, it's real. Who knew? Well, that's refreshing. Uh, and in the late nineties, I met a master healing miracle healing saint from South India named Kaleshwar, who at the time was 27 years old and was demonstrating healing miracles that were so intense, like uh, dissolving terminal cancers within five minutes, manifesting objects out of his fingers and out of his hands and out of thin air that contained healing energy and he would give them to his students uh, in order for them to carry on the healing energy in the world because those objects were enhancing their already developed healing abilities. You know, they had come from the miracle energy and they were radiating more miraculous energy into the world. So that caught me super strong. Um, and because his stance was about helping everybody develop their innate spiritual and supernatural healing abilities that every human being has that capacity just as largely unacknowledged untapped uh and in many cases unwelcome to us that caught me and uh so i wound up living in india for five straight years in south india training with him uh and learning everything his stance was yeah i can teach everything i want to give everything that i know to people who really want to do hard work and i was certainly in that category um, and so since the year about 2000, uh, my whole life has been dedicated to teaching and healing and sharing all of the high-end, uh, very, very practical healing systems that I got in South India. Uh, and then, you know, after five years straight living there, I went back and forth for another, oh gosh, eight years, I guess. Uh, and to this day, when we don't have a global pandemic running, I take tours of my students you know, to the power places in South India to gain a lot of healing and a lot of spiritual awareness and divine energy very quickly. So 
my life had a big change right there in the late nineties in a direction that honestly, I would never have imagined. Had someone told me that 10 years earlier, Hey, you'll be living in South India at the feet of a guru learning this stuff. I'd be like, yeah, right. (laughs) What are you smoking? I want some of that. But that's, so that's been my life. And otherwise, you know, I'm still a writer and a, and a musician of sorts and a, a ardent cat lover. And, uh, I live in Los Angeles, California. And for gosh, since about, I think 2016, you know, I've been doing my work mostly online. And of course the pandemic really brought that front and center. So I just sit in my beautiful place in LA and, you know, touch the world in any way that I can to help people. That's that's my story. Yeah. And it it is unusual to, you know, to have gone, like you say, to Southern India for what must have been such an immersive experience (laughs) for you. And so I'd I'd love to get a sense of, you know, when you look back on that time, like what insights do you take from that time and how has it shaped who you are in the world today? Oh, that's a great question. I mean, that's a 10 hour lecture probably. (laughs) Uh, and a blue streak of talking from me, which is my specialty. But to reduce it to a few points, I would say the number one thing that I learned was that the worst disease that human beings are facing is heartbreak. That 90% of the planet is completely heartbroken. And that that doesn't mean romantic heartbreak alone, although that's, of course, a factor. Um, I think in the West, we tend to only zero in on that. But heartbreak means, you know, we would know it by other terms, like extreme depression, extreme anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder. It means anyone who's suffered extraordinary loss in their lives. It could be loss of a loved one. It could be loss of a, of a birthplace through growing up in a combat zone. It could be growing up in a family that's uh, dysfunctional and abusive. It could be uh, loss of uh, uh, professional ambitions, right? that never materialized. It could be betrayal in business or by a good friend. It can certainly, of course, include romantic heartbreak. You know, it can be like death of a loved one. So many things contribute to human heartbreak. And that seems to be the basis for all the other uh, diseases and conditions that arise in the human condition that cause us so much pain and stress. So whether it's a physical illness or a mental health issue, my understanding now, and I I didn't really get all that as a young person, obviously, was that it's all coming from heartbreak. And that if you know specific formulas, specific modes of how to address that, it can be reversed, it can be changed, it can be ameliorated in a human being very quickly, actually. And that's kind of, I think, the basis of the miracle energy. So that heartbreak Uh, And I think also people have heartbreak with God or heartbreak with religion or heartbreak with a spiritual figure who maybe turned out to be a charlatan. There's a lot of that quality or category of heartbreak as well. And all of it seems to me to touch the primordial heartbreak, which is this illusion that we're separate from the source from which we came. Mm -hmm. And everything else seems to, to me now to spin out from that. So how do we reconnect that? Uh, I think that's the essence of healing. And we could say that's the essence of spiritual awakening or a whole lot of other terms we would put on it. But so that, that became my kind of larger insight that how do we 
stop this experience of being disconnected from our, from our true selves. And, and it turns out that's actually quite a choppy, bumpy road. It's a pretty arduous thing to, to go inside and wrestle with the real self and reckon with all of the layers of protection and defensiveness and coping skills and, you know, kind of knee-jerk cynicism uh, and, and a kind of suspiciousness that is natural. We develop that when we get heartbroken enough but that's not our real state and that's not our true self. Hmm. So I think that would be like the biggest insight that I got. And also I have to say for myself, spirituality as such always seemed like this esoteric woo woo <laughs> people raving about getting enlightenment or something. And I would listen to people talk like that. You know, I was in like Buddhist circles in Silicon Valley and then sort of Hindu ish circles and people would speak like that. And I was like, yeah, okay, well, what do you mean by that? Number one, <sighs> number two, I'm not interested. And number three, if you get this so-called nirvana or enlightened state or whatever, what are you gonna do with it? Maybe I'm just funny and restless that way, but I couldn't see the point of just sitting in the bliss when this is a world that's fraught with suffering and pain and misunderstanding and conflict. It, it would seem to me you wanna do something about that, right? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> And, and so what I discovered in my own journey was that healing and spirituality can be immensely practical and sort of like change people's state on a day-to-day -day basis instantly uh, and dramatically <clears throat> and nothing or esoteric or academic or vague about that at all. And that really caught me. So these two things, like how to stop the disconnect feeling uh, from our true self, let's say. And alongside that, how to grab tools that are practical and make spirituality a living, breathing, um, helpful er, presence in our lives, not some abstract, esoteric, you know, out there woo-woo thing. Yeah, that's fascinating to me. And, you know, as you were talking there, I, I was just kind of reflecting on, on my own journey Ooh. of experiencing in a way, you know, different worldviews. Because as you were talking about the number one worst disease is heartbreak, I was thinking it's such a different way of, of, of speaking about, you know, a, a, a problem that many of us are facing compared to the way we describe it in the West, you know, where we would bring it down to the scientific, the biological, the physical ailment issue and almost negate and <laughs> kind of ignore the context or the emotions or, you know, anything else that is, is, is kind of having a bearing on the way people feel and are able, you know, the capacity we have to show up to life or, or not, you know, yes. and, and, and I just heard that so clearly in the way that you were speaking there, you know, being introduced to a different way of being a different worldview, I think is incredibly powerful. And, mm -hmm. um, and I love that it's given you this insights and set you on a path that, you know, your own home culture arguably couldn't have given you in the same way. And so I'd love to, I also love that you're talking about the practicalities of it, 
because it's almost like, as I'm listening to you, Alice, I'm hearing, it's almost like you're building a bridge from east to west. Do you see what I mean? And I know I'm being yes, a little bit like entirely. theoretical here, but if that's yeah. what it feels like. It's yes. like, how can I take what I'm, this amazing healing that I'm learning here and bring it back in service of the problems that we're, you know, so many of us are facing, particularly today. So I think this is a very timely conversation. Mm. And yes, I'd love to get your sense on, you know, um, we've been talking on the podcast here, you know, with different people about what what sense they're making of this time that we're living through right now. Mm. And before we get down into the practicalities of the energetics of self-care, I'd love to get a sense of what what. What do you what do you make of these times we're living through? Do you have a sense of, you know, a meaning that you're taking away from these times? I do. Yes, that's a brilliant angle to come from. And uh, just to backtrack on one point that you said before mm. I touch the larger, what the hell is going on on this planet right now? <laughs> uh, the reflection that we don't often consider heartbreak in the mix of, especially for the West, you know, but I would say this is probably worldwide. It's just not the term that we would apply to our challenges and difficulties, mm. especially the mental health issues or the, you know, the things like free floating anxiety or insomnia or these kinds of things. Uh, generally, we, we tend to think about them, as you said, in a more scientific or a, you know, psychotherapeutic uh, term and try to meet it on that level, which is great. Symptomatic you know, or expression of a problem is pernicious symptoms that can use treating however one can treat them, right? But the underlying thing is the same and that's not going anywhere. So it may very likely manifest in a different way. Uh, let's say, you know, you take a sleeping pill to sleep. Okay, so you've solved the sleep problem, but then the anxiety is still there, right? Mm -hmm. So then, okay, you address that maybe through therapy or meds or some combination of it, mm, but then the compulsive eating is there. Right. You know, so until the underlying thing gets tackled, I think we have a bit of a, of a problem there. But the most extreme example of that or that I want to reference is um, PTSD, especially with like combat veterans. Mm -hmm. and, and I would say, you know, PTSD, of course, is not <laughs> confined to our veterans. It's, you know, again, like I said, anybody who grew up in an abusive household or uh, maybe suffered extreme trauma in one way or another, uh, a car accident or, you know, something. But with combat veterans, I think it's a very clear line to see the heartbreak component in it, which is when you have someone serving in the armed forces in active combat, they're generally very young, right? 18 to 20 year old, usually men who of necessity will witness and perform horrific acts that really no human being, I think, should witness or perform. Mm -hmm. And if we talk about the inner heart or the soul of a human being, our real essence, it's a very delicate, divine place in us. It's like a small flame sitting at the heart. And, you know, it doesn't take much to overload that part of ourselves. Mm -hmm. When someone sees or does a, a, an atrocity, it's like an injection through the eyes, through the heart, through the ears, through the senses of extraordinary kind of outrageous pain yeah. and trauma. And it goes straight to the heart. It's like crushing to the inner essence of a human being. 
The problem is it will lodge in there as an energetic input until it's taken out through really, I would say kind of um, extreme means, as extreme as the energetic shot that put it in there in the first place. And so I see a lot of, you know, combat veterans. I, I used to work a lot with combat vets and help them get out of the PTSD through the tools that I know. But I see many of them, you know, they're going the traditional route, which is psychotherapy, medication. And, you know, there are a lot of alternative, beautiful things that are coming up now, like equine therapy and uh, all kinds of different modalities to address specifically uh, combat veterans PTSD because it's so prevalent. And, you know, we've had uh, veteran suicide has just been off the charts mm -hmm. uh, in America, certainly since the um, Iraq war and the Afghanistan uh, war as well. So clearly there's a failure there to address this underlying deep, deep, deep thing, um, which I would offer is pure heartbreak. And it's not only that the heart is broken and that person is broken, you know, psychologically, it is that all of that energy of whatever the trauma was that they either performed or witnessed or both. And, and if it was multiple, then it's cumulative, obviously. It's still sitting in that delicate place inside the heart like as an energetic kind of time bomb, tick, 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 right? They have the dreams, they have the, um, uh, you know, the flashbacks that, that surface at different moments. Like all of it, that energy is still in the human body. It's still in the system. It needs to be pulled out by energetic means. Um, and unless it is, that person is, you know, they're going to be able to put a bandaid on it uh, pretty successfully, but not get that underlying let's say charge out of the system. Mm. Um, and so when I talk about heartbreak as a fundamental, you know, uh, source of everything painful in our world, that's the kind of dynamic that I'm talking about. Uh, that's an extreme one, obviously, but many of us have gradations of that, you know, that are perhaps less extreme, but nonetheless uh, addressing the same place and, and recurring as a kind of, uh, ongoing symptoms, however it expresses through our particular neurophysiology uh, going on in time. So, so I just wanted to put that there, you know, to categorize what I'm talking about by extreme heartbreak mm -hmm. and that energetic ways to get to it and help it dissolve are, are um, I think the most practical kind of healing that I've witnessed on the planet. Uh, to your question about <laughs> what is this crazy world right now? Ah, okay. So, you know, whenever you have extreme, there's good news in it. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> Definitely, you know, we all know when you've lived a certain, uh, when you've lived to a certain point in your life, you've lived long enough to understand that suffering is built into the fabric of, of being a human being. Anyone with half a brain at a certain point looks at this whole world and starts to question, why is there so much pain and suffering in this planet? Yeah. Why? And the religions are, you know, more or less not entirely helpful on that subject. Well, God is omniscient and all loving and all this and that. And then comes that friction point of, well, if God is all loving and all knowing, then how, why is there suffering? How can this be? Right. Which sometimes is a heartbreak factor for people. And they walk away from any kind of inquiry on that line because it's just too upsetting. Um, so anytime you have high divinity, high positivity, 
and we can see this in our own lives, I mean, in small examples, but anytime you have something very high positive that you're embarking on or that you're involved with, uh, especially if it's on a big level like social change or, uh, you know, uh, activism or, or something like that, the high positive uh, movement in a good direction attracts an enormous amount of negativity automatically, right? We're a polar planet. That is to say, we have two opposites always in, in force here. We have night and day, we have male and female, we have good and evil. We have all these extreme polar opposites that are kind of like the pistons uh, driving our creation. And the funny part is the relationship between positivity and negativity. You know, for example, like a Gandhi, for example, you know, there's a super high divine positive character, right? Doing a beautiful social movement change, galvanizing a whole nation to throw off the shackles of colonialism. And how is he rewarded for that? He's shot, right? Huge negativity coming to such a high positive person. I mean, we can go through the lists of, you know, astounding characters in the US who were all assassinated in the 60s, um, very similarly, right? Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, Bobby Kennedy, John Kennedy, et cetera, et cetera. When, when somebody has a very high positive, there's that negativity wants to deflect it, destroy it, distract it. It's, it's part and parcel of our creation. A simpler example would be, can a beautiful young woman uh, walk uh, in the middle of the night through a, a city without being accosted, molested, you know, attacked? No. Why? She didn't do anything wrong. She's just a beautiful woman, right? So we have this kind of funny polar dynamic going on. What I see in our planet is that the consciousness, the inner awareness, the higher level of capacity of the human um, consciousness, I guess, for lack of a better word, is coming up, up, up en masse very quickly, like super quickly. It's like a, it's like a shot of positivity in our world. And because of that, we see the huge negativity backlash at every turn, you know, trying to suppress it, push it away, stomp it out, you know, distract it, deflect it, denounce it, whatever it is. So in a bizarre way, I take it as a good symptom that we're seeing so much insane <laughs> negativity in our planet right now, whether it's, you know, fascist leaders coming up in all the different countries, or it's the Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, or it's the uh, American, you know, assault on women that we're seeing in our political spectrum right now. Whatever it is, I think it's like the flailing death rattle, trying desperately to grasp of the old way of a really entrenched negative system in face of enormous consciousness on the rise. Mm -hmm. So it's really upsetting. It's really awful, you know, to live through this. Um, it's very turbulent, as you know. And I suspect it's also causing a lot of people to take notice and think, okay, well, what is really going on then? There was a great saint in the early 2000s, an Indian yogi who was interviewed by somebody. And the interviewer, this is the early 2000s. <laughs> I mean, the planet was pretty off the rails then and even more intensely, I think now. The interviewer asked the saint, well, don't you think it's more negative now than it's ever been on this planet? And the saint said, no, no, no. The negativity is about the same, actually, <laughs> for the last several millennia. <laughs> but the difference is this, more people are seeing it. 
Yeah. It's as if you went into a room that's completely dirty, like just in disarray and, and covered in dust and disgusting, but the light's off. So in the dark, you can't see that the room is really dirty, right? You won't see it. However, when you flip on the light switch, you're, you're thinking, oh my God, this place is a mess. We have to clean it up. That's where humanity is sitting right now. A good proportion of human beings are seeing it. And I think in many ways for the first time and are reacting to this like disgusting, you know, overflowing kind of, you know, like the gutters are overflowing <laughs> <laughs> with, with, you know, filth and negativity and, and, and awfulness. But the good news is that everybody's seeing it, right? I mean, just take the Me Too movement, you know, upending millennia's worth of patriarchal rule and a grip on the secrecy of sexual assault and sexual violence. That was not really talked about openly, right? It wasn't. And there was nothing to do about it. Women just kind of, you know, tolerated it, whatever, because that's the way this world is structured and the men have the upper hand and we're kind of stuck with that, whether it's in corporate or, you know, uh, retail jobs or, or whatever, just that seemed to be the fabric of it for millennia. Think about the mistreatment of women. It's always been there. Yeah. Uh, then we started to see, you know, like sexual harassment laws and people bringing lawsuits uh, in work environments and this and that. But even so, the larger, you know, underlying power lever of that was really untouched by it until the Me Too movement happened and broke it open. And that spread planet wide. Yeah. Women in all different countries were saying, okay, we've had enough now. That's an extraordinary earthquake in what would seem to have been an insurmountable negative social issue governing the whole planet. So, and I'm not saying it's perfect. I'm not saying, of course, that all that awareness has led to the kind of change on that subject that needs to be pervasive, but that was a huge opening salvo and unthinkable to our mothers and grandmothers. I mean, really unthinkable. In the fifties, forget it. That wouldn't have been talked about, you know, turn of the century. I don't think so. So, I take that again as a really good symptom of so many people simultaneously from whatever angle they're coming from, whatever path, whatever religion, whatever belief, but there's something in the collective soul that's waking up really fast. And because of that, we're so sick of what we're seeing. And because of that, we can change it. I love that. Yeah. And, you know, and as you were talking there, I was just like having some insights of, of my own here. <laughs> And it was like, so, you know, we started this conversation talking about heartbreak and, mm -hmm. you know, and it seemed to me as I was listening to you, like heartbreak does and has and continues to happen. But I think in the past it's happened behind closed doors. And mm -hmm. like you said, it's not something we've talked about. And now as, as I was listening to you, like explaining your, your kind of view of, of where we are and what's going on now with all the craziness, it's a really interesting perspective that it's not any worse than it ever has been. It's just that now we can see the collective heartbreak. Yes. Now we can have conversations about it. Now we can, you know, we see the media pictures in real time of what's going on in the Ukraine right now. Like it's not taking like months or years for that information to flow around the planet. We actually have it in real time, which means that 
it's confrontational in a way that perhaps it wasn't in the past. So do you think of this time as, because, I mean, I put words in your mouth there maybe, which is, (laughs) you know, this is collective heartbreak that we're kind of experiencing right now. And we're realizing not only are we experiencing that, and I'm saying the word we very intentionally, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. we're also potentially contributing to that (laughs) unconsciously you know and unintentionally maybe but we're a part of this entire ecosystem and I as you were talking Alex I was just feeling it's like we've lost the soul of the world it's like Mm. the heart of the world is is shifting we are Mm. heartbroken I, I can really see through that lens yeah yes I think that's absolutely true and you know, it's part of the, it's part of the drill of being a human being. You will come into this world and you will suffer. And that's how we make sense of that is the, the difference between being, let's say, aware and not aware. Right. Mm -hmm. I think every tradition, every, uh, every teaching on the planet that's worth anything encompasses the subject of suffering and makes some sort of sense of it, right? It's not in vain. It's usually we learn through suffering, unfortunately. Yeah. We, we don't learn when things are, are, are blissful and happy and moving along the way we want them. We usually learn when we don't get what we want. Uh, we usually learn through having the heart kind of cracked open and then having to dig deeper to make, to find meaning in it or to come out of a cycle of our own self-destruction that definitely contributes to our own heartbreak, right? Um, So the learning process is a painful one. It it is one level. And so how do we accept that and make sense of it? And also, you know, fine tune it to the point where we don't accept (laughs) certain levels of it, especially on a global or societal level. Mm -hmm. The point where we just put our foot down and say, yeah, that's enough now. That's enough. Mm -hmm. Like we have had it with this kind of, you know, repression or violence or, you know, whatever it is that we're, we're objecting to. Uh, that's all in us, right? We, we have all the capacity for all of that. We know that, right? We've all done regrettable things. We've all done things that would qualify on some energetic level as violent, you know, whether it was an argument with someone or a resentful thought on another person. We, we create our own inner war zones. Yes, we do that. Uh, when we see it play out in the physical world, or it's more, you know, uh, startling, certainly, and, and horrific for anybody living through it. Uh, same time, it's part of the larger wake up, I think, a, a demand. And I feel that nature herself is saying, hey, guys, I'm reflecting all this to you in through the lens of nature, through the lens of the big uh, conflicts running on the planet, through the nature, through the lens of like, natural disasters, you know, through the earthquakes and the wildfires and the floods and the tsunamis and all of it, wake up. I'm showing you your reflection in this larger mirror of nature. Mm. And I'm telling you, you guys, it's untenable. You have to learn to take care of each other. You have to learn to love one another, even in the face of incredible suffering. Mm. Um, And I definitely see that uh, exemplified by the Ukrainians. I am stunned daily by their ferocious uh, determination <clears throat> and their care for one another. 
Yeah. And their care, even for the animals, you know, for the pets that people have had to abandon as they fled towns because the Russians were coming. You yeah. know, there are all these rescue operations in Ukraine who are just taking care of the cats and dogs. And whoa, I mean, they have such a respect for the, the fabric of life. And it seems to me they have an enormous respect for the fabric of nature, yeah. whether it's in the form of a human being or a vulnerable animal or an old person or a child or whatever it is. Um, that's a very divine uh, position, I think. And we see, you know, it's definitely stirred up its negative counterpart, right? Yes. <laughs> Coming to try to crush and, and you know, destroy. And, and I feel like that's the battle right now for the soul of our planet. Do we want to be self-determining democratic societies or do we want to be under fascist dictatorships? I think that's become very clear. Yeah. Uh, Ukraine, I feel is like the lightning rod for all of that, but that's for all of us. Yeah. And I think that's why the world is so magnetized on the situation in Ukraine. And so galvanized geopolitics aside, I think the larger point of, you know, are you on the side of the light or the dark? I mean, it, it's pretty basic, yeah. right? Couldn't be more clear in this situation. <laughs> no, that's very true. Yeah. And that speaks to all of us, you know, at a, at a, at a really primordial level. Yeah. And it makes me think, you know, the title for our conversation and uh, indeed for your work in the world, energetics of self-care, mm. mm. you know, when I, when I, when I look through the lens of that title at what's mm. going on in the Ukraine, right. Mm. Mm. And then, and then we extend that out to the rest of the world it's kind of interesting to me. I mean, I don't, I don't really have the language, so interesting is not a great word, but I don't really have the language for the, the horror I feel mm -hmm. that we have created all these human constructs like politics and all these other reasons why we think we can't go and help. <laughs> um, yes. And yet, you know, there's a very humanitarian issue going on here and the rest of the world is kind of sending some stuff and watching. And it feels to me like uh, it's a dreadful metaphor to bring out, but like the bullies in the playground are like, yes. you know, just killing everybody. Yes. And we're just kind of behind the railings, just kind of watching going, oh, okay, they're dead now. Okay. Oh, well, yep. maybe we should give them a bit more ammunition, but yep. we're not really, we've not really treated it like the humanitarian issue it is. And yep. if you think about self-care, like we're not caring, like you just said, Alex, we're not caring for each other as humans. We're, we're kind of imprisoned in these human constructs that we've created in this world that we think we live within. <laughs> yes, <Doesn't> ma'am. <laughs> yeah. And I think, you know, uh, oh, gosh, <laughs> this idea of, you know, the rest of the world standing back or wringing its hands and trying to define yeah. whether or not this is a genocide is, is yes. absurd. Yes, exactly. I mean, it, it's hints of Chamberlain, you know, back in yeah. the appeasement era before World War II. I, I do see that the light side, the, the well-wishers and the different mm. nations who, who are, in fact, I mean, many of the Eastern countries, mm. uh, Central Europe, Poland, especially, mm. they are rallying, man. They're sending yes. everything they can Yes, because they know that they're next if this, yes. <laughs> if this goes exactly. you know, badly, right? But they've been stalwart in their defense of the Ukrainians and trying yes. to make a case to the rest of the world to like send planes and things that would really help. But um, majority, I think the countries are like slow to catch how 
how planet-wide a threat this is. Yes. It's such a character who has absolutely no scruples. And, you know, we saw it all play out in Syria, exactly the same techniques that they're using now. So it's not like this is a mystery to anybody who's been watching, but it feels to me like the, the, the other countries seeing this first, they're like, Oh my God, we can't believe it's that bad. Mm -hmm. Right. First they thought, I mean, America, UK, everybody, they were like, well, you know, essentially the Russians are going to take Ukraine in two days. And then we're going to have to figure out how to deal with Russia. Yes. Nobody thought that the Ukrainians were going to, you know, rally and (laughs) and repel a Russian invasion, nor did majority of people realize the disarray that the Russian army is in, which I think is quite instructive. Um, there were a few uh, intelligence people, military characters, uh, who had a lot of experience from the U.S., you know, like decades of, of observing this kind of stuff, who were saying, no, nah, Ukraine's got this. Mm-hmm. Ukraine has this. But they were a very small voice in the whole community. So it was a kind of like resignation from the very get-go. And now I feel like it's a game of catch-up. And partly it's a catch-up of, and, and I get this on some level, you, you can't, when you are a fairly ethical person or you have a kind of conscience, it's extraordinarily difficult to imagine the depths of depravity of someone who is devoid of all that. You you can't wrap your head around it. Mm -hmm. Someone who would literally just destroy everything for the fun of destroying. That's such a, a antithetical concept to anybody who has a conscience. So I get it that the Western leaders, you know, they're varying degrees of imperfect human beings as we all are, but I feel like they just couldn't even conceptualize right. <laughs> the, the dark, hideous magnitude of this, of what Putin is, is you know, trying to engineer there. And right. I think even when he took Crimea and this and that, you know, the US kind of looked away and went, well, okay, you know, all right, whatever. Not grasping the larger uh, aspiration there and not grasping the ruthlessness there. Mm. And, and I get that, but it's kind of like, I think they're waking up to it now. <laughs> I think everybody's kind of got the point. <laughs> yes, I think so too. And yeah. So I just want to say, you know, uh, I spent a lot of my working career in, in change. And one of the, the things mm. that I've learned over those years is that, you know, our context, our environment that we live within, you mm. know, really does shape us and shapes our future in, 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 and can like really affect everything from our health to our worldview, to our beliefs, to, you know, everything yeah. really. And yeah. so, you know, every single one of us that's listening to this podcast right now is living through these times. We're living in these turbulent kind of environments, you know, to varying degrees. But, you know, how does the energetics of self-care come Mm. into play here? I mean, what is it that we can do to help us navigate Mm. just as individuals in this space Mm. and deal with our own, I'm going to use your term, heartbreak, Mm. because it feels to me some days that my heart gets broken multiple times from the time I get up in the morning to the time I go to bed. There are days that bring me to my knees, right? Yes. How do we navigate that? Wow. That's such a brilliant question. Um, I think you've kind of hit on the whole crux of it. So let's scope back from the whole global Mm. game that's running and come back to the personal. So what I observe about human beings is that 
with or without our notice and whether or not we believe it, which is immaterial, we're kind of like semi-permeable membranes mm -hmm. absorbing constantly whatever it is that we experience around other people or environments, or even, you know, in the world of online and, you know, you reference the constant stream of uh, real-time news that we have, mm -hmm. we absorb all of that. It's a natural thing. And again, it goes through the heart, which is kind of germane to the whole discussion that we automatically uh, take on the pain and suffering of other people. It doesn't matter if you're in corporate, like, you know, I'll see people in HR or pro uh, project managers who are essentially the shoulder that their coworkers come to cry on. Okay, that's great. They have an open heart. They wanna help their coworkers. Through that open heart, it becomes like a sponge. And when someone is telling their pain or their problem or their conflict or their difficulty to someone who's empathetic, it means the empathetic person is, is helping relieve the person with the problem of some of their pain, just through the act of listening with an open heart. We do that for our friends. We do that for our children. We do that for random strangers in the supermarket. We do that, you know, maybe that's our profession. Maybe it's, oh, so sorry, there's like a street noise behind me. <laughs> um, maybe we do that through, you know, our profession as like a psychotherapist or um, a school teacher or uh, an air uh, flight attendant, you know, like we interact with people all the time. And when the heart is open, we absorb their stuff. That's a really big point because what happens is that absorbing over time builds up. And usually without our notice, because we're not very sensitized to look at the world through the lens of energetic uh, dynamics in our world. So here's the thing. And <laughs> the human system is like a battery. It can hold charges. We're basically like bags of water, you know, one level physiologically with, you know, semi-precious metals in us. And how that translates is we can absorb charges like a battery. We can hold them, be it positive or negative. Positive charges we want to keep. A beautiful sunset in nature that brings you to tears. Uh, a piece of art, you know, whether it's performance art or a visual or a writing or music, you know, something that really moves us inside. We feel it when the soul, when the heart is moving inside, you know, again, it's a kind of a thrill inside or it brings us to tears. Um, it could be an interaction with a family member that's just so loving that it has that kind of soulful quality to it or, um, uh, you know, seeing animals in nature do something really beautiful, two cats playing and frolicking with each other. And, and you go, oh, you know, there's this tender quality of receiving positive charges that are very nourishing to our soul. Anytime someone does volunteerism or social service for other people, there's a beautiful quality of that feeling in it or a good meditation or uh, a religious experience, you know, that's really positive and helpful. These are the kinds of positive soul, uh, soul charges that we want to hold in our system. The negative ones, I mean, they're pretty obvious, right? Being in a stressful environment, um, listening to people's pain and trauma uh, and, and helping them through it. But nonetheless, some of that comes to us in the process of helping. That's how we're built. Or it could be someone yells at you, you know, uh, or it could be an argument or it could be a slight of some kind, or, you know, somebody shoots you a dirty look in traffic if you cut them off. 
<laughs> you know, like these are really negative charges and they will lodge in our system unless we have an effective means through which to de-charge, literally de-charge them, to pull those out, to dissolve those. Otherwise they will accumulate and they will build up and build up. And over time you will see mental health issues like compulsive behavior, anxiety, depression, insomnia, uh, compulsive behaviors, addictions, um, you know, it could be eating disorders. It could be whatever, like all kinds of symptoms will start to grow in a very open-hearted, good person, simply by virtue of holding all these layers of other people's stuff that we don't recognize, mm, or it can be a physical, uh, symptoms, you know, uh, body pain, um, uh, lack of appetite, nauseated, or mind kind of churning a lot, like it, it won't let go, you know, the classic uh, people taking their work home with them in their head. That's an energetic charge. Somebody told you something that was really painful during the day. And then at night, you're still grinding it around in your head. It means that's an energetic charge that's in your system. And unless it's decharged effectively, you'll metabolize that and it will become part of you <sighs> going forward. And then the next one and the next one and the next one, right? So we need this effective way through which to dissolve these kinds of charges um, before they build up to physical illness or mental health issues or both, God forbid, uh, or it simply leads to burnout. Can't do it anymore. Cannot, like the cup is so full, it's overflowing internally. And majority of that stress, majority of that discomfort inside, majority of that internal uh, difficulty is not yours, it's other people's. We have, to, we have to find a way to manage that energy. Um, so it's not like it's a bad thing. You absorb someone's pain. That's why we're here. We're supposed to do that for each other. <laughs> That's a good thing. However, we've lost the book about how to handle it and how to manage that energy effectively. And so when I'm talking about the energetics of self-care, that's what I'm referring to, literal techniques, literal tools that are so stupid simple, they're jaw-dropping. And they work to pull those energetic charges out of our system on a daily basis, uh, if needed, and return it to nature where it belongs. Mm. And it's, it's really, I, of all the things that I learned in India, I find it the foundation of helping people come out from the, like the dullness and the numbness and the overwhelm of, of absorbing and absorbing and absorbing and absorbing all the pain and suffering in our world until they just, they just crack. They can't take it anymore. Mm. And it's unnecessary. It can be avoided completely. So I'd love you to walk us through something about how, because, you know, as you're, as you're talking, I'm, I'm kind of reflecting on my own state, let's put it that way <laughs> at the moment and thinking how easy it feels for me at the moment to just Ooh. retreat retreat from the world and yes. I'm I'm an extroverted energetic personality I'm I'm not usually introverted although as I'm getting older the balance of introversion and extroversion is certainly kicking in but for me that's quite an unusual feeling to yes. want to retreat from the world and I know I, I definitely do classify myself as an empath but I, I'd love to have a sense and to share with our listeners you know something practical where if we find ourselves because it's it feels 
I think of it sometimes like a toxic overload that's exactly accumulating in my field. Yeah, absolutely um, is. And and you know, and if there are some simple ways for us to deal with that, that could be really useful for people listening in. Yeah, that's the whole point. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> I feel like people are dying for this, and like I wish they yeah. taught toddlers because even playground dynamics would improve a lot. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, and I, I want to give a concrete example for your listeners so they have some sense of what I'm talking about. Um, and I mean, I have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of stories of people from all walks of life who have, you know, kind of hit the end of their road in mm-hmm. terms of how much they can absorb, not understanding that until they hit these kinds of techniques and realize, oh my God, none of this stuff was mine. Mm-hmm. So I have a colleague who's a physician, uh, an internal medicine uh, doctor who, uh, was like literally wrote a textbook that's still used in internal medicine. I mean, he's at the top of his game and a very, very open-hearted guy also in the same spiritual, uh, family that I am now. But before he came to all this, he had a small clinic in uh, Northern California. And he said every single day when he came home from the clinic, you know, seeing patient after patient after patient, he felt like he had been hit by like three trucks. He was exhausted on every level and had nothing like completely numb. He said, I would go home. I would smoke marijuana. I would sit in front of the television watching nothing. Like I'm seeing the images, but I'm not taking any of it in Mm. kind of like trying to regroup, right. Trying to just get a hold of himself. Um, He said, unfortunately, I couldn't really interact with my children and my wife. He lost his marriage. And his perception was, well, that's kind of the doctor's life, right? That's it. That's what medical school was like. It was very stressful on that level. Um, Nothing in the training ever prepared you for anything different. So he just kind of assumed that was his lot, right? You come home every day. It takes you three, four hours to decompress. It's not really decompressing. It's just kind of like numbing everything because he couldn't function. And... (laughs) He learned the decharging techniques and I'll, I'll give one of the techniques so people can start to practice it, but he learned one of them and was absolutely stunned, you know, within a half an hour on the way home from work, he could decharge all the stress and strain. He didn't realize that the numbness that he was feeling, the overwhelm that just like shut down the whole system. It wasn't his stuff. It was all the people that he was treating that day right? With their rather serious medical conditions and all their fear around that and their pain and their experience of it. He's listening to them with an open heart. He's treating them. He's helping them. And in that exchange of energy where a patient, let's say, uh, gets relieved of some of their fear or their pain or their their upset about their condition, uh, they get relieved of it. Well, we know energy doesn't disappear. It just changes state. Where did it go? Majority of it will go back to the cosmic through the person who's facilitating that healing or that shift, but some small percentage of it will stay lodged in the, in the physical system, in the subtle energy system of the person who facilitated it. In that sense, we're all healers for everybody uh, without our notice. If a friend calls you with a big trauma and they talk to you for an hour about their pain, and by the end of it, they feel lighter. <laughs> How do you feel at the end of that conversation? you know, maybe drained, maybe irritated, maybe you want to go kill somebody, maybe you want to (laughs) fix a drink, you know, and just kind of numb out. Maybe you want to go for a walk. You know, we all have different 
uh, neurophysiology. So the way we receive that energy and express it may be different, but the principle is the same. You facilitated that person's shift by listening with an open heart. They're relieved of something. You got most of it. And the problem is, what do you do with it, right? So um, the decharging, I'm trying to think what's the easiest of the techniques that people can do, like the most practical and the, and the simplest. Um, I think, generally speaking, when they look at the human energy system from the point of view of Vedic India, what predated Hinduism, just the sort of blueprint of creation that's in the, the ancient manuscripts called the Vedas of India, where like they even identified, you know, atomic and subatomic structure back thousands and thousands of years ago, they wrote it in Sanskrit. They would talk about the, this whole planet as being composed of what they called the five great elements, the earth, the fire, the sky, the water, and the air. And that everything in this creation is made of some configuration of those elements, including the human system. If we think about our own bodies, we have the earth element is represented in the bones, our really dense, gross material structure. Uh, the water element is, you know, 75% of our body is like water, like the planet. Uh, you know, in the flesh, the circulatory system, the blood is mostly water. Uh, the reproductive systems are all water-based, the salivary, you know, like we have a lot of water going on in our system. Um, the air element, the breath in and out, right? Without the air, you, you're not gonna live very long. <laughs> uh, the fire element is interesting. It hooks to, of course, our digestion is one kind of fire, but also inspiration. The fire element links, especially on the two eyes, the physical eyes and what they call the third eye or the eye of consciousness sitting you know, between the eyebrows and the forehead. When you see someone who is inspired, inspiration, pyros, right from the Greek, literally fire. You see it in someone's eyes if they have a twinkle or they have a kind of brilliance. That's the fire element is pretty uh, balanced in them. If you see someone who's um, extremely... <laughs> Uh, has anger management issues, okay, their fire element's a little off the rails. <laughs> it needs a little balancing, right? So I'm just giving this examples of how our own human system is composed of these elements from the point of view of, of the Vedic uh, understanding. When we interact with the concretized five element um, representatives in our world, they're like doorways back into the nature from which we came. So usually when we're decharging, we're using the three most concrete of the five elements, the earth element, the fire element, and the water element. Um, actually, I'll give two techniques because I think it's really important um, for people. So one of them I'll give that you can use when you're working so that you don't have to take time to, again, schedule a self-care thing, which is just creates more stress. <laughs> like, why would you, why would you do a stress relieving technique when it's adding to your plate <laughs> and causing more stress? It doesn't make sense. So some of these techniques can be done in the workplace and, or in the moment when the argument is occurring or in the moment after someone tells you a really painful traumatic thing. So you don't have to hold it. You don't have to wait uh, till the end of the day or whatever to, to offload it or decharge it back to nature. So the simplest, there are many uh, embodiments of the earth element in our world. If you think about the earth, its nature, its, uh, its, its main um, quality, if you will, is uh, magnetism, it's gravity, right? 
If I drop something on the floor, it's always going to hit the ground, right? That's a principle of our world. We have gravity. Um, in our physical system, we magnetize, we hold a lot of our um, emotional traumatic charges, the negative charges in the subtle earth element system in our body. Um, so if we're using a physicalized representative of the earth element to offload it back to the big earth, you could say, it's a really practical technique. Um, the big earth herself, she's a little bit too overwhelming. Um, for instance, you know, like you'll see in a lot of films or traditional cultures, when somebody receives bad news, you know, somebody died in a war or something, generally people will fall to the ground and start mm -hmm. to cry. Why do we fall to the ground? It's because the earth itself is a huge healer. Mm -hmm. The earth will pull out from a kind of magnetic dynamic that it has any kind of pain or suffering that we're feeling. It actually feels better to lay on the ground and have a good cry. The problem is she'll pull out, she doesn't differentiate the earth. <laughs> she'll also pull out the positive charges that you're trying to hold on to. So not advisable. So what we need is a, is a microcosm of the larger globe with its incredible magnetic capacity to pull stuff out of us uh, that doesn't compromise us holding the good charges. And the most, again, there are many uh, different implements that, that could be used, but the easiest by far is a black rock. And I know it sounds completely crazy, but just go with me on this. A black stone, it doesn't matter what kind of black stone, it can be a river rock, uh, landscaping supply places are great to find black rocks. You know, you can get a whole bag of them, whatever. Uh, it can be obsidian, who cares? It's a black rock. It needs to be really black, not gray. It can, it should be like 95% black. So if it has some little streaks or flecks that are white or whatever, fine, but really black. Any size, doesn't matter. If you hold it in your hand, in the palm of your hand, mm, for people who are a little woo-woo, we know that there are chakras in the hand. There are energy centers. There are like little doorways in our energy body uh, in the palm of the hand. So when you hold a black stone in your hand, um, black's quality is that it absorbs energy, right? We know that like you wouldn't have a black car with a black interior if you live where I do in Southern California. <laughs> it's gonna <laughs> absorb all the heat and it's gonna you know, fry you in the car. Same thing like you don't want to wear a lot of black clothing on a really hot day, right? It absorbs. That's its nature. Black stones are unique in, the, in this role that they play in our world that they absorb energy and like a, an iron filing to the big magnet of the earth, they automatically return it straight to the big earth. So we can't hold the whole globe to do a decharging process through. That would be a bit overwhelming, but we can hold its representative, which is a small black stone. Mm, so the decharging process works like this. Let's say you came home from work and you have a headache because you frequently come home from work and you have a headache, right? To me, that's your body telling you, you need to decharge. That's a symptom. Our tendency is you take a pill, right? And it, the headache goes away. Hmm. But what if you take your trusty little black rock and you say, all right, I'm gonna try this crazy thing. Uh, I'm going to decharge whatever I picked up today that isn't me from the myriad interactions that I had with people. Or maybe there was a specific one that was a real zinger, you know, that's still kind of reverberating in your system, in your memory. Fine. The, so you, you notice your symptoms. Oh, 
I'm feeling a little bit anxious and I have a horrible headache. Hmm. Okay. My system itself is telling me I need to, I need to address this. So you take your little black rock in your hand and you have the following two-part process. The first part is a little statement or a prayer of gratitude to whatever it is, nature, God, Jesus, Buddha, mother nature, higher power, something larger than yourself. If you're an atheist, just go with nature. Just we're acknowledging that there is a, a larger uh, creative force that made this little black stone. And you say, thank you, right? Thank you. The languaging might be, you know, thank you universe for having created this little earth element black stone that I'm using right now. Thank you. Gratitude is very important because it opens the heart. When the heart is open, energy can flow through it, either out or in. So this is a mechanism, right? This is, this is a, a kind of, you could call it a technology. So you're holding the stone and you think, thank you to whatever it is that you address uh, as the sacred. Second part, right now, this is important. It's not 10 minutes from now or tomorrow. Right now, I am decharging. I am dissolving whatever stresses I picked up today that are not me. And you're holding the rock and you kind of let it rip. What I mean by that is this. You've signaled to your inner consciousness, hey, we're doing this thing right now. We're offloading all of our stress into this little black stone. That's like an iron filing to the big magnet earth. It's going to go straight back to the big earth. And it's kind of innocent, this process. You know, it might be, if people are really sensitive, they might feel energy flowing through their arm, going down to the hand and through the rock. Some people describe the rock gets itchy in their hand or the hand feels itchy, or maybe the rock kind of heats up, or maybe they don't really feel anything at all except their symptoms subside, whatever it was, the racing mind or the churning stomach or the headache or whatever it is. So the idea is that you're sitting there holding the stone. You don't have to keep hammering the intention. I'm decharging, I'm decharging. You can do other stuff. Or my physician friend would drive home with one hand and hold the black rock in the other. By the time he got home, he had decharged all the pain and stress from the day. And he was fine. He was completely fine. It was like, oh my God, how did I not know this? <laughs> well, we didn't know it, right? Until someone points it out to us. And I think it's about reconnecting with our relationship with nature in a profound way. Nature is there to help us. Mostly we ignore it or we're uh, kind of um, inured to its role in our lives, but it's really a, a, a living kind of breathing dynamic entity around us and through us. And so this is simply harnessing uh, our relationship with nature in a, in a really um, focused and precise way to get the relief, right? So the idea is you're sitting there and you can watch a movie or you can do other stuff. Periodically, you, you revisit like, hey, I'm still decharging, but it, it's not like you don't have to hammer it, right? And you just simply let it happen. Your system knows what to do when you do the prayer of gratitude or the statement, thank you. And then you say, okay, right now I'm offloading everything. I'm decharging it to the stone. Your system knows, like it can take it from there. Your inner consciousness knows how to do this. So you don't have to sweat it too much. 10 minutes, 15 minutes, uh, depending on circumstances, whether there was a really rocky interchange with somebody that left you shaking. You know that, right? Like sometimes someone will yell at you and you're shaking afterwards. Why are you shaking? 
your neurophysiology sustained a hit, like that negative charge to the inner battery. That's too much for you. You have to decharge it. Or you saw something happening in the Ukraine, you know, like the horrors of Bucha or some massacre, and your whole system is in like overwhelm. You're shaking, you're crying. Man, you need to decharge that. That's a negative charge that's coming into your system, you know, through your open heart, thank God. But if you don't manage it, it will take you down over time. So you're sitting there with a black rock, you're thinking the two-part intention, 10, 15 minutes like that. The rule of thumb is this, if you're in an overt healing or helping profession, let's say, for example, a psychotherapist or a medical physician or an energy healer or an acupuncturist or something like that, the amount of time that you spent that day doing healing work, maybe it was like four hours total, um, you need to decharge before the end of that day, before you go to sleep at night, about 10% of the time that you spent uh, actively in the role of taking care of people. Uh, so if it was four hours, that would translate to four times 60 is 240 minutes or about 24 minutes. You can break it up throughout the day. You could do it after you know each session. If you're in a workplace, you can have a black rock in your pocket. You can be decharging while these things come up on the fly so that you don't have to handle it later You know, on the way home or at home. You don't have to make extra time to do that. I have a student who is a um, psych nurse uh, and she had a black rock in her pocket on the floor. She's dealing with the, you know, really kind of kooky people, uh, who are off the rails with overdoses and 5150s and all that. And that's a pretty intense environment to be in. She simply kept her black rock all the time. And when something really intense happened, she decharged it on the spot, a couple of minutes, just holding the black rock, even while talking to other people or whatever. Um, so this can be done in the workplace. This can be done in the circumstance where the stress is happening. Uh, you're, the difficulty is identifying, remembering, oh, wait a second, these symptoms I'm having, they're actually telling me that I'm out of balance. I need to decharge. We take them so for granted. We've normalized headaches, body pain, obsessive thinking, uh, inability to sleep, and so on. We've made that just like, oh yeah, that's life. No, it isn't. <laughs> These are symptoms that your own system is telling you we're overloaded and you have to address this or else it's going to get worse. Mm -hmm. So we have to discern that. We have to pay attention to that. We have to get a little more sensitized. And, and I will say this for people who do this with the black rock. After that 10 or 15 minutes, you know, usually the symptoms dissolve. If they don't, after 10, 15 minutes, keep going a little bit longer, right? You'll know when it's over, because you'll feel a state of really just kind of normal and calm inside. And for some of us, that can be a real revelation <laughs> because we're not accustomed to feeling that. Right. You're like, wait a second. Wow. I feel actually really good. And the symptoms evaporated and oh my God, what just happened? Yeah. That's your real state. Anything um, other than that is you've absorbed too much from other people and you're not aware of it and it needs to be addressed. What's lovely about that is the simplicity there. Mm -hmm. And also, you know, by using a black rock, there's that reconnecting to the earth yes. as well with it, which just feels so, I don't know, so organic, so right. It is. Um, yeah. So I love that. Listen, Alex, I'm, I'm noticing the time. So I'm going to ask you a final question. Okay. Which is that, you know, if you had something that you wanted to share with our audience today, maybe it's a few words of wisdom. I don't know what it might be, but I just wondered, you know, what would you like to leave our audience with? 
Yeah, I think it is this concept that I consider is quite radical in terms of self-care. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of people have a lot of um, reservations about self-care because we've been sold that it's selfish mm-hmm. or they have a kind of inner uh, lack of self-esteem or a feeling of unworthiness. They don't deserve it, right? We have to take care of everybody else. No, I have to, I have to you know, stay on my schedule and, and do my work and you know, I'm the last one on the list usually, right? And what it makes us do is look outward for relief. We'll go to a massage therapist, we'll go to a physician, we'll go, you know, to an acupuncturist or a spa or a sound healing or, you know, whatever, in order to get some kind of decharging, in order to get some kind of relief. And how long, how far do you want to keep relying on other people outside yourself? to handle your own energy system. Each of us has a profound healer inside, a really profound healer. You know, each of us is equipped with that. And I feel like the illusion of the West and the external focus on fix me or help me, or you do me, right? I go to a yoga class, I'm so relieved. They're calling the moves, I don't have to think. They've done me, right? taking the the onus of it off of me. I don't have to learn all that and and guide myself through it, fine. So at a certain point, I feel like we desperately need to reconnect to the healer that we already have inside and develop that self-maintaining capacity that we have. Then we're smoother and easier and we're actually more efficient in our work, regardless of what it is we're calmer, we're coming from a place that's more centered and less uh, thrown off of our center. We, we gain a certain resilience when we handle our own energy system through, let's say, decharging the stress and strain. Here's the thing, if you're holding stress, right? Let's say three stressful things happened before lunch today. I'm already reverberating energetically in my system with those. Those charges are in there. By the time the fourth one comes my way, if I haven't dealt effectively with the first three, the cumulative buildup is I'm going to lose it on the fourth person or the fourth situation, right? It's going to be too much. So it's going to create more friction, more conflict, more difficulty, or more inner stress. You know, I'm not going to lose it on them. I'm going to suck it up. And now I'm really going to be resentful and angry and inside having a lot of stuff going on. We can handle all of that. We don't have to go through those kinds of paces, which means we can meet the world that we live in from a much more clear, peaceful, functional place and kind of like bring our own internal wellness into the field of whatever it is that we're doing. And through that, I think, you know, everybody benefits. It's a, it's a win, 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 win across the board. We're happy, people around us are happy. Everybody's more efficient, more creative, more inspired, more capable, you know, and I feel like that's our responsibility to try to bring that to the world. And, and it's kind of upending the whole tradition of looking outward for relief. I'm not saying don't, I'm saying, and (laughs) we can manage our own energy in such a way that is, is really helpful both to ourselves and everybody else. Um, And I do want to add um, that two-part intention using that uh, little black stone, for example, uh, through the gratitude. Thank you so much for this beautiful earth element that I'm using right now, or right now I'm decharging through it, which is about as stupid simple as it gets. You can do the same thing in the shower, in the water element, 
exactly the same thing. You're standing under the water. You're going to take a shower or a bath anyway, right? (laughs) You simply add the two-part intention. So grateful for this beautiful water element right now. And while you're standing under the water right now, I'm decharging everything I picked up. Lovely. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Thank you, Alex. I mean, I have really enjoyed our conversation today and I know our listeners, they'll just feel so inspired and learn so much from you and your wisdom. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. I hope everybody can take away some sense of empowerment that you're not at the mercy of it all. You can handle your own responses to it from an energetic point of view and, you know, make a big difference for yourself, for your family and for the people around you. And what else are we here to do? (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Ah, It's been so much fun. Thank you. Okay, guys, that's all we have time for today. Thank you so much for listening in. Now, before we go, I do want to remind you that all the resources and links for our guests are in the show notes at sacredchangemakers.com. And a big thank you to our sponsors, Coaches Business School, who are helping us make a global impact aligned with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, all visible on our website. And if you're a coach wanting to grow your impact, you will need to understand how to build a business that works today. Check out Coaches Business School to transform your business with purpose-driven profits. It's time to build a bridge from what you want in life to include what the world needs from you. And together, we can make a meaningful difference. Again, you can find us at sacredchangemakers.com and our sponsors at coachesbusinessschool.com. And if our episode resonated with you today, I hope you'll consider joining us. So for now, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your intention and efforts to make our world a better place. Until next time, lots of love.